Hey everyone, Tim here. We've got an amazing interview coming up with District 1 candidate Candace Avalos. As Candace was leaving our interview, she said to us, are you covering the Multnomah County election? Because for city council to work effectively, we need good people at the county. Kip and I stared at each other feeling pretty dumb. We've been so focused on the city council elections in November, we failed to even notice the May 2024 election where many seats are running almost unopposed. So we're jumping in, and we have an interview coming up with Shannon Singleton, who is running in County District 2 against the regressive Julia Blake. So look for that. Meanwhile, Progressive District Attorney Mike Schmidt is also up for re-election in May. He's facing a challenge from someone in his own ranks who's backed by big money donors. We had the pleasure of talking to Mike, and our interview follows. Timur Ender, one of our favorite candidates running in City District 1, is having a campaign launch March 16th. Go to his website, enderforeastportland.com, for more info. That's the number four in enderforeastportland.com. Now on with the show. Welcome to the Progress Portland Podcast. I'm Tim Halber. I'm Kip Silverman. And we have a very special guest today, District Attorney Mike Schmidt. <laughs> we are very pleased to have you here. Uh, I thought we could start off by, if you could please explain to our listeners, because it's still, I don't think it's common knowledge, uh, what a district attorney does and uh, why it's important. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for having me. Uh, first of all, really looking forward to the conversation. Um, district attorney is one of those uh, elected positions that I think a lot of people for a long time really knew hardly much about at mm -hmm. all. Um, in Multnomah County here locally, before I ran last time in a contested election, the seat was basically uncontested for four decades in a row. Wow. wow. Uh, and so it's really just one of those positions where, you know, there hasn't been a lot of public attention. But then I think in the last decade or so, um, <laughs> nationally and, and around different places, people have started to really think about our criminal justice system ask ourselves, how did we get to where we are today? As we've talked about things like mass incarceration and the disparity in our system and the outcomes that we are achieving or not achieving, how did we get there? And people started to realize, oh, district attorneys play a big role in our system, mm -hmm. both from a, a practical role, which is we are the prosecutors. So uh, in your mind, uh, think of that courtroom TV drama that you've seen, right? Dun dun. Yeah. <laughs> right? Sam Watterson. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. Right. So <laughs> if, if you really, the most basic and the easiest way is think about the people in front of the jury, in front of the judge. And the prosecutor is the side representing the state and saying, this is the evidence, ladies and gentlemen of the jury, that proves that the person accused of this crime did it. Right. Mm -hmm. That's our side. Now, at the other counsel table, there's the defense attorney and they are the people that are defending the rights of their mm -hmm. clients. Um, so at the most known, a prosecutor is taking evidence that is gathered from agencies, usually police agencies, but from other places, putting it all together and then presenting it usually to a judge. Uh, to say, this is how I can prove that so-and-so did this act. Uh, and then once that part is resolved, we call that the guilt phase of a case. 
Once that's resolved, and then the person is determined to have done whatever it is they're accused of or not, they can be acquitted too. But for the things that they have been convicted of, now we get to the sentencing phase. And that's where a lot of really the interesting policy questions come mm. to play. Uh, because the guilt phase, did it happen or did it not happen? Okay. But now that we have established in front of a jury that it has happened, what do we do? And for a long time, uh, district attorneys have played a pretty uh, punitive role, mm -hmm. being advocates for a lot of very punitive and draconian policies uh, across the country. Um, and you get things like three strikes, you're out laws. Or, right. you know, in Oregon, we have Measure 11. You could say that's a one strike and you're out law. Uh, where you are sent to prison if you are convicted of this crime. And it doesn't matter if it's your first or your 10th. It doesn't matter what your circumstances are, who you are, if you're a great person, you've done all these other great things, but this time you, you, did a, you made a mistake. It doesn't matter. One strike, you're out. So prosecutors play kind of a, a dual role. We're in the courtroom. We do the accountability piece. Then we advocate for what that accountability looks like. But we're also huge players in the policy conversations. Uh, so legislators, governors looked to district attorneys, the lawyers in the courtroom to say, what should our policies be? What should mm -hmm. sentencing law be? And historically, district attorneys have played a pretty uh, punitive role in that conversation. So since you were elected, a lot has happened. You came in, in in our summer of unrest in the anarchist jurisdiction of Portland. You've kind of navigated some tough challenges, I think, in that, right? And weighing the right for people to protest against police officers not being attacked and police officers maybe being a little aggressive. And I'm going to use maybe a lot in this space. So, um and in the last few years, you know, Measure 110, and I'm not an expert at this, but the Hubble decision mm -hmm. and all these different things coming together, how do you see the landscape changing in just a short time you've been doing this? Yeah. Well, can I take us back to my first days in office? Sure. Yeah. Because, you know, so much happened that even I forget some of the things that happened. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and, and I'm not a great journaler or diary keeper. So, um, you know, uh, which is probably a detriment because it was wild. So I'm elected May 19th with over 76% of the vote. So I win the primary outright first contested election in Multnomah County in decades. The people overwhelmingly choose the person who's running on a platform that says we can do this smarter. We can yeah. do this better. Less than a week later, George Floyd is murdered by police officers. Uh, within days, the city of Portland, like cities all over the country and in the world, too, erupts mm -hmm. with protests. Um, the then district attorney resigns. He quits, taps out. Uh, the chief of police steps down and says, not her time at this moment. Right. And the governor gives me a call. And says, I know you weren't supposed to start until January 1st, but we really need you now. And uh, boy, you know, when the governor calls, uh, it's hard to say no. Uh, but I probably should have, uh, you know, talked with my wife a little bit longer <laughs> before saying yes. Um, but, you know, it was it was a very challenging moment. And I felt like, uh, you know, we needed to have people there that, that we're going to make tough decisions yeah. and, and be leaders in tough circumstances. 
So my first day on the job was August 1st. So that is actually about the 60th day mm -hmm. of the protests. So by this point, the Justice Center has been sacked. It was set on fire and, and, and our arraignment courts were really shut down. By this point, protests had exploded, but then actually were waning quite a bit. But then the president decided that he it would benefit him electorally to reignite Portland and try to make us a campaign issue by putting us on a poster. And so he sends in his federal troops from all over the country. Yeah. And I'm walking in to news reports of uh, residents of Multnomah County being kidnapped off our streets in unmarked vans. Right. Of, uh, you know, less lethal munitions uh, being shot at people at close range at night after night of tear gas, um, of all kinds of really, uh, I think, historic challenges uh, in our community. And I have 550 arrests, 550 cases on my desk on day one that the previous district attorney said, I'm not going to make a decision wow. on these. So my very first act in getting in is to say, well, what, what am I going to do? Our courthouse is... Uh, shut down more or less from COVID. So juries aren't coming in. Arraignments, which is an arraignment is when you come in, you were arrested for a crime, you come in to actually be officially charged in the court. They are postponed between 30 and 60 days mm. because the justice center is boarded up because of smoke damage and fire damage. Our court system is ground to halt. Our caseloads for the office are just stacking up because... The criminal justice system depends on cases coming in and cases coming out. Mm -hmm. Well, if they're only coming in and not going out, then they're going to start to accumulate. So all of these things, and I'm faced with 550 cases. What are you going to do with these? And so I uh, got a community advisory board together, mm -hmm. a transition uh, team of community members from across the board. And I said, what do we, what, give me your, your thoughts on this. And, you know, they guided me and said, you know, Mike, um, we really think that where people are out there holding a sign in the street that says the criminal justice system needs to change, that black lives matter, that the way we've been doing things is not right, that using that same system to silence their speech mm -hmm. is problematic. Uh, and so, however, also... It's not okay for people to destroy things, to damage windows of businesses, uh, you know, of to do graffiti, to damage or to hurt people. Not okay. Right. And so how do you take a system that is overtaxed, is ground to a halt, uh, and is experiencing the civil unrest, how do you use that system? Uh, and so we came out with a policy uh, that said, if you are, you know, not damaging anything, but you're holding a sign up and, and maybe you don't leave right when you're told to leave, but you get arrested, we're not going to prosecute those cases. However, if you are damaging things, if you are doing, you know, you're hurting people, whether that's a police officer or a, a fellow protester or anybody else or just community member, we're going to prosecute you for those cases. And that's what we ended up doing. Um, and so by the end, we uh, prosecuted over 200 cases. Um, some people for very serious crimes. Um, there were, you know, uh, an individual that we prosecuted for throwing Molotov cocktails. Mm -hmm. 
um, individuals who were waving loaded firearms around the crowds. Like, so some people we prosecuted for very serious crimes on the right and on the left doesn't matter. I mean, this is about what did you do? Mm -hmm. Uh, What is your conduct? Uh, and so we prosecuted those, but where it was, you know, not that where it had no, uh, property damage or violence or anything else, we said, we're not going to overburden, uh, the system right now. And also, you know, recognize that there are actual first amendment interests at play here. Um, and so it was a challenging moment. Um, it put me off in a challenging position with law enforcement to say the least. Uh, but now that we have, all kinds of after action reports and studies from different organizations that have come in and said where we did things well and where we did things poorly. Uh, I think we're very vindicated on that approach. Um, you know, we've seen a lot of lawsuits, uh, you know, suing the city of Portland for mm-hmm. the way some of this was handled. Um, and I really believe had we stuck to as a system an approach that held people accountable for doing damage, uh, we'd have been in a much better place uh, as an entire criminal system. Uh, on how we handled these protests. So that's how I got started. That was, that was like right away, right? right? I've got Donald Trump talking about me in speeches. The DA, Mike Schmidt, you know, his name is in Portland, you know, and he's talking about me. I got Bill Barr, our attorney general, talking about how mm. we ought to be charged with treason. And, and you know, you, you say these, like even at the time, I'm like, that's absurd. Like how, how could you do that? But then things were so scary with the federal government that I really didn't know. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Am I going to get arrested in my office? Am I going to be walked out of my home with Mm -hmm. my kids? Because the federal government, the Trump administration uh, wants to make me a campaign issue. Right. So, you know, it seems absurd and silly now that a local district attorney could ever be uh, charged with treason for doing their job. Uh, but at the time, you really had no idea. And we had all the different, you know, obviously lots of death threats, lots of people, um, you know, especially on the right coming to my home. And, and that, you know, put us um, and my family out of our house for a period of time because it wasn't safe to be there. So um, that was the kind of the backdrop. And then as that starts to wane and get under control and die down, now you've got a pandemic Mm-hmm. Uh, that you are still trying to navigate. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, and, um, you know, we've been doing that. And now I think uh, we're on the backside of that. We're seeing caseloads come down. We're seeing cases move through the system. So we're making a lot of progress there. But it's been uh, it's been a challenging few years, to be sure. Yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. So um, fast forwarding to today, the story a lot of us see out of that is that the, the combination of, of the protests of the pandemic, downtown gutted, other neighborhoods impacted, homelessness expanding, addiction more more of a crisis. Uh, how do you feel that you fit into this new situation, this new on the ground struggle of our city? Yeah, well, obviously there there are a lot of real challenges that we face, and so many of those issues are impacted by societal forces and other things. Um, but that's where we find ourselves today. So as the district attorney, as the person who is in charge of prosecuting criminal cases, the question that I've asked myself is, what is my role in these challenges? Obviously, I'm not a housing provider. I'm not a, a treatment provider, right? These, these are not my things. I can advocate for those things and I do. 
but what is what is my role? How do I help uh, our community go forward in these challenging things? So, for example, let's take uh, homelessness, uh, right? I think that a lot of times the criminal justice system uh, actually exacerbates homelessness, does not help it. We all know that jail beds are expensive. Uh, I like to say that it's our most expensive housing option. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's also our least effective housing option Mm -hmm. if your goal is to get people into Mm -hmm. permanent housing. It is the housing option most likely to make people chronically homeless. Exactly. So using the criminal system as a way to help homelessness, well, well, how do you how do you do that? I think there are ways, um, just not the ways that I think are being advocated for by some. Mm. Uh, So, for example, I got to go down to San Diego, California, and they have something that they call a homeless court down there. And it's kind of a misnomer, but it's existed for a couple decades. Mm. And I really like what they're doing down there because it actually flips the old paradigm on its head. Typically, a criminal system is used as leverage to get people to do a thing, right? Uh, I'm going to arrest you for this. uh, And if you do X, Y, and Z, if you do treatment, if you stay uh, clean, if you do this, then I will give you this benefit, right? Mm -hmm. It's a coercive system by its very nature. San Diego flips that on its head. Uh, What they've done in San Diego is they have said, instead of We are going to arrest and prosecute you unless you do these things. They are saying that we're going to partner with treatment and housing providers and people across the board, and they are going to come up with criteria, the providers, the service providers. And the service providers will say, engage in these classes, meet these benchmarks, do these things. And what they're going to use that for is when anybody walks through their doors for any reason and says, hey, I'd like some help. They say, great. We're here to help you. What can we help you do? Is it, is it mental health? Is it addiction? Is it housing? How can we help you? Job training, whatever. They say what it is. And they say, hey, stay with us. Stay engaged with us. Because I guess what? We have a relationship with the local district attorney. And if you engage with us, if you stick it out, we've got a relationship where we're going to send him this letter. And when we send him this letter that says that you're engaged with us, that you're doing these things, he's going to help you get your record expunged. Mm. He's going to forgive fines and fees that you owe. Mm. If you have old convictions or maybe even current charges like misdemeanors or warrants that are out, he's going to help you resolve those things because he knows that you're working with us. Mm. So it's a complete incentive model instead of a coercive model. Mm -hmm. It's stay with us. And they, the district attorney is going to help you with the barriers that you're facing. And it's so powerful because right. I think the most dangerous thing to public safety is when people don't have hope. Mm-hmm. When they are hopeless, that is when people engage in antisocial behavior. That is when people say, the society doesn't care about me. I don't care about it. Mm-hmm. And I no longer am going to respect the social compact, the, 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 the norms and the rules of the road, because nobody is respecting me. So when people get hopeless, that's when they are most likely to do things that are, that are negative, either to themselves or to others. And so the San Diego model, which I want to bring here, and I think we're going to be announcing some things here in March, mm. uh, really is a hope model. Mm. Hey, you walked through those front doors today. That's an act of hope. You came to us because you want to see your future being different. And guess who's engaged in this fight with you? The district attorney. 
And here's the path. Those barriers that have been beating you down for your whole life or for a recent, he's going to help you remove them. And so here's how you can get back on your feet. And I think it's so powerful. And so there are things I think a district attorney and a prosecutor can do to help an issue of homelessness. Now, I don't think it's filling up our jails and trying to coerce people into, uh, you know, changing their ways. Uh, You know, I mean, I think it's about how do we give people a path where they can actually be successful. So that's just one issue. And then there are so many other things that you mentioned that are facing this community. You know, I mean, uh, fentanyl is obviously a real challenge. Uh, We've seen our overdose death rate uh, skyrocket, as have states around us, Washington State, California. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, the East Coast got hit first and harder. The West Coast, the last few years, it's been our turn, unfortunately, and we weren't prepared for it, even though we could have forecast that it was coming our way. You know, but uh, we're not an outlier uh, from the other West Coast states. Right. We are seeing, you know, the dramatic effects of, of fentanyl. I think there are things that a district attorney can do there too. But in any issue that's facing our community, whether it is uh, increasing automobile thefts, which we have seen during the pandemic, retail theft, and how that's affecting our businesses, uh, whether it's homicides, they are proactive things that a district attorney can do, I think, to, to really be helpful in all of those areas. We'll be right back with more from our interview with Mike Schmidt. Hi there, I'm Juan Carlos Ordonez, host of Policy for the People, a show that explores how to make Oregon a more just and equitable place. Right now, more than two in five Oregon families make too little to afford food, rent, and all other basic necessities. Meanwhile, the rich keep getting richer. We did not arrive here by accident. It is the result of bad public policy choices, of rules designed to benefit the rich and corporations over everyone else. Every month, this podcast, produced by the Oregon Center for Public Policy, looks into how we can turn things around so that all Oregonians can live in dignity. Subscribe to Policy for the People wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us at ocpp.org backslash podcast. And now back to our interview with Mike Schmidt. Everything going on with Measure 110, talk about fentanyl, talking about how do we address all these things. My biggest concern is that um, I think it was last week, heard a conversation, uh, Portland for All, I think is where I heard it. One of the panelists, which I think you were on that panel as well, had mentioned that what 110 had the biggest impact of doing, and we could talk about all the problems with it, and there are many, but it brought a lot of users out of the shadows. It didn't increase usage. It just took them out of the alleyways and tents and everything. And that is problematic. It is dangerous. It, I'm, I'm not minimizing any of that. My concerns are a lot of the conversation is going to put them back into the shadows. And I understand there's people out there that is like, yeah, that's, that works for us. We don't care. How do we use that as, I'm going to argue, a punitive tool uh, until we have better solutions, but how do we use that to help people get the help they need as opposed to an eventual potential incarceration or putting them back in the shadows where they can't have that 
coordinated care and our systems don't seem to be prepared to handle any of it, which we should be able to. Okay, I'll stop talking now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, this whole thing is is very challenging in a lot of ways because there are so many legitimate interests that are um, challenged by, uh, by drugs in our community. For me, as a prosecutor, I try to separate the health issue of addiction, which is a health issue, uh, I try to separate that from the actions that individuals engage in. Mm. Um, There are people that use drugs and don't commit crimes. Um, They don't go steal cars. They don't do other things. There are other people who are addicted to drugs and it is their drug addiction that uh, fuels their criminality, right? And so I think I try to be very mindful in policy conversations or anytime thinking about these issues is focusing on the action that is potentially harming the community versus the addiction. Mm. I think addiction is a health issue and, and we ought to be doing everything we can to get people into the health system and into treatment. I think for a long time, uh, the war on drugs and everything else has been this idea that the criminal system should be the health delivery system. And what that really sets up in my mind is there's a health delivery system for wealthy people and a health delivery system for poor people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The one for health for wealthy people is like, hey, Betty Ford, write your check, right? You know, you're all, you're fine. We don't need to arrest you because you can afford treatment. Oh, you right. can't afford treatment? Well, we have a system for that too, and that is our criminal system, and that is so problematic. Mm-hmm. So when I'm thinking about these issues, I try to divorce the addiction from the action. And where it came down to for me on public use is I think that is an action that is harmful to our community. I mean, you know, I'm a parent and I have kids and like many other people who take their kids around and, and we walk around the streets and take them to school and everything else. I have to have these conversations with my children. I have to see people that are that are not well on our streets and, and that are, are very much suffering. The fact that they are there and suffering, but when they are using openly, it makes people not feel safe. Uh, it sometimes leads to people not actually being safe. And, and so it's, it's the action mm-hmm. that I think I'm trying to balance uh, and say that our community spaces have to be welcoming for everybody in our community. And if you're taking actions that make our spaces not welcoming for people, then that's the action we have to focus on. Now, so there's the action part. Your question is, okay, if we do something about that, how can we get people into the help part? And again, I don't like the criminal system as healthcare delivery system Mm -hmm. model. We have people that commit crimes and we try to get them into treatment all the time. We have drug courts for this. We have a drug court that focuses on property crimes in Multnomah County. And so if that is what's driving your criminality, then there is that kind of old, you know, coercive, like you're going to do treatment. And as long as you stay the course and that works for some people. I talk to people in recovery and, and a lot of, I have heard from people in recovery that it was that intervention that changed their lives. Now, I think where we fall into the trap is thinking to ourselves, that's the only type of intervention that mm-hmm. can save people's lives. And here's the real deficit. We don't have enough treatment resources in our community. I think if we had more treatment resources, that's actually preventative mm-hmm. for crime because people ought to be able to get treatment at that moment 
that golden moment where they say, hey, I actually don't want to live like this, whatever it is that triggers that for them. But right now we don't have it. And so one of the things that I'm concerned about with any conversations and mindful of about recriminalization is, well, what is the treatment resource that we're going to get them into? So I think the legislature has work to do there. Um, We do not have enough right now as it stands. I have people right now in my drug courts that are waiting 60, 90, 120 Mm. days for a bed to open up. Multnomah County used to prosecute when possession of a controlled substance was a misdemeanor not that long ago, Mm -hmm. 1,500 cases a year. So we've got to find maybe 1,500 new connections for people. And I already don't have connections for the people who are already in the system. Mm -hmm. So I'm very concerned about that. I think any conversation around criminalization has to also include robust growth of our treatment. I got to go to our BHRC the other morning, which is the Multnomah County's Behavioral Health Resource Center Mm -hmm. downtown. And I got to see something really cool. Treatment providers funded by uh, BM 110 were there. And so were police officers and, and Oregon state troopers. Mm. And then treatment providers showed up and the treatment providers, it was almost like a, a market. Like they were calling out, Hey, I've got three detox beds open this morning. And everyone's like, okay, three treat. Somebody else says, I got five residential treatment beds that we can fill today. And everyone says, Oh, okay. We got five, re-, you know, and they were like calling out, you know, it was like the stock market. Like, Oh, I got this. I got that. And then they said, all right, We know what resources we have today. Break, go. And Mm. you had law enforcement, you had treatment peers uh, that were doing outreach. And so when law enforcement was going around, they were contacting people and said, hey, uh, you know, you look like you might need some uh, help. Are you interested in a referral? And they could be that advanced force because they're they're engaging with people anyway mm-hmm. on our streets. Or right. as a business owner calls and says, hey, you know, this there's a gentleman in my doorway. I need you to do something about that. They're, in, they're having these conversations. But now we're giving them actual tools. And if the individual says, yeah, you know, what? I actually would like to have that conversation. The police officer says, great. There will be uh, two peers uh, right here within 10 minutes to talk to you. And then they disengage. Yeah. They were done. It was incredible. Uh, but that's what it looks like when there are resources to give. And and that's what I hope um, that anything around this conversation, I think we do need to respect uh, everybody's rights and abilities to enjoy our spaces. Mm -hmm. And we need to have actual meaningful resources to do something that's helpful and not just, well, here's your arrest, here's your night in jail, here's your fine, here's your conviction and record and all these things that end up being the barriers that now I'm having to clean up down the road when they're trying to access housing. Right. Sure. Yeah. No, thank you for that. Yeah. Um, You mentioned retail theft a minute ago. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw a recent report that said in 2023, crime numbers are down. Um, there was a scandal recently with the National Retail Association having announced that like <laughs> billions of dollars in organized mob theft happening across the country, and it turned out to be completely false. Um, I'm very wary of crime being used as a, a, a platform for people who are entering office. Obviously, crime is what you know is, is part <laughs> of your job. Uh, but can you talk about the reality of like you know retail theft hitting your desk? And, you know, how that ties into just the feeling of safety and, and talking to people about it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I've, I've seen all those reports. And, and of course, I've seen, you know, stores uh, leaving a location and they cite crime. And then when you actually look at the crime statistics, you find out that their other locations actually report more crime than the ones that they shut down. So then it calls into question. Target. <laughs> <laughs> the validity of those claims. Yeah. 
so it is one of those things that I think everybody should be, um, you know, cautious consumers of that information. And also, we do see uh, stores being targeted in an organized way uh, with theft. And now, is it uh, the crisis and, and, and it's worse than it's ever been? Like, obviously, the retail association had to walk back because I think that they were, um, well, obviously, they were not accurate in what they were saying. And so they had to eat that. But it doesn't mean that it's not happening. Mm-hmm. Right. And so I think that's where my focus is. We have set up... Um, both a retail theft task force and a auto theft task force. Mm. And we got a prosecutor and an investigator designated to each of those task forces individually. And what they are there to do is to focus on individuals that are making this their job. Uh, We have people in our community that wake up every morning and they go to the store and it's a shopping list and they're going to steal these things and then they repeat and repeat and repeat. We just uh, arrested an individual who uh, has stole tens of thousands of dollars of oxtail from local grocery stores. Wow. Uh, He steals the oxtail and then he sells it to restaurants and food carts who use oxtail. And it's a higher price uh, item and you go in, you steal it. So every single day, you know how many oxtail you have to steal to get to (laughs) tens of thousands of dollars of oxtail? I mean, I think he was over 20,000. It's a lot, right? Yeah. And so the theory of the task force is if we can focus on individuals that are driving a lot of this crime, uh, then we can have a noticeable impact on our local businesses mm-hmm. uh, and and relieve them of, you know, a very real pressure that they face. Um, and so that's that's the focus for us. And and we also know that it's not just the individuals doing the stealing, but it's the um, places that are doing the receiving, supporting it. Yeah. Yep. And so and then those types of stolen goods end up on. Amazon Marketplace and Facebook Marketplace and these things. And then people, you know, are just saying, hey, this is a great deal on a Lego set, uh, 50% off. You never see that. Well, it's probably stolen. <laughs> that's true. As a, as a father, <laughs> I can tell you, you rarely see 50% off a Lego set. Um, so, you know, I think that's, that's the focus. I think where people are trying to create a hysteria and things, um, I don't know that it's any worse or anything new. But and these things are happening and they do have very real impacts on, uh, you know, even smaller local business, obviously big box stores you hear a lot from. But I hear a lot from smaller retailers, Mm -hmm. too, um, that end up being targeted by by individuals. Um, You know, sometimes a lot of them are just mom and pop shops who are, you know, kind of your more 7-Eleven style you know, outlets for, for beer and cigarettes and things of that nature. And they're just getting hit over and over and over again. And those things are being resold. So, um, it's, it is something that I think meaningfully impacts, uh, our community. You know, when we're looking in the pandemic, we saw a, a dip in cases being referred to my office and this is, and I know we'll get into the, the misinformation that's out there and the mm-hmm. people for Portland nonsense and all that. But this is one of the things that they hang their hat on is the, the whole number of less cases being prosecuted. And that's because there's a whole number of less cases being arrested and mm-hmm. referred to my office. But one of the areas where we saw the biggest decrease in referrals uh, from police to my office was theft. 
And so I asked the chief about that. I said, chief, you know, why are we seeing so many fewer theft cases? What's going on there? And very reasonably, he, you know, he talks to his folks and he says, you know, Mike, what we're seeing is that especially a lot of these big box retailers, they've all changed their corporate policies. And the changes were, we are now hands off. We no longer are going to stop people uh, at the store and hold them for police to come. So therefore, if you're not stopping somebody and holding them for police to come, there are less people for police to then arrest and bring into my office for prosecution. So he said that really impacted the number of thefts that they were able to send. When you look at the total number of reported thefts in Multnomah County. So every time somebody picks up a phone and says, hey, uh, my package was stolen off my front porch, or you're the store and say, someone just walked out with a shopping cart, the total number of reported thefts, we went from approximately 10 to 11% of those cases pre-pandemic end up being arrests in cases to 3%. Hmm. 3%. That means 97% of the time that people are stealing things, there is no arrest. There is no case that comes out of that. Wow. So now I'm prosecuting 80% of 3%, mm. right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so it really is a, it is a challenging issue because I think there is something to be said for some amount of deterrence um, and accountability for people, and especially when people engage in this over and over again. So there has to be that kind of front-end interdiction of behavior. Um, and so the task force really is trying to focus on the chronic uh, folks uh, with that. And same with auto theft. We've gotten some amazing cases. We got a guy mm-hmm. who was stealing a bunch of Teslas. We had a tow truck driver. We caught him with a, something called Operation Missile Tow. We're, we're very punny in the criminal justice system, <laughs> uh, but it was around the holidays. And, uh, and this was an individual who had a rigged up pickup truck that he was towing cars and he would just uh, find cars that he felt like probably wouldn't be missed as quickly and uh, towed them and immediately took them to a wrecking yard, pretended that he had legitimate ownership of them and was having them crushed within three hours. Wow. Uh, and so we think he's good for over 80 cars that he's wow. done that. In wow. Last. So the task force model is really a model of focusing on individuals that are disproportionately harming our community and trying to hold them accountable. Um, and in both of those areas, we've seen decreases in um, thefts and a, a very significant decrease in auto uh, thefts in our community in 2023. That's phenomenal. Um, and and I, I recall something about the catalytic converter mm. thefts going down because found a conduit to the person buying them and said, you're going to go to jail for 190 years or whatever it was. And I'm the guy's like, I'm that. not doing that anymore. So yeah, yeah the, uh. I love the catalytic converter theft uh, story because traditionally, again, go back to the old, we started off prosecutors, every uh, problem, you know, can be solved by more prosecution and tougher sentences, right? That's the right. old kind of framing. Yep to every you know hammer everything is it looks like a nail right and it's the same thing so we are getting hit hard by these catalytic converter thefts especially in the early part of the pandemic i mean my mother-in-law was scared that she had a prius scared to death mm-hmm. and so she went and bought a cage and you know everybody seemed like knew somebody who had their cat stolen um and so i was walking around the halls with my deputy da's and i said you know i'm just having conversations how do we what do we do about this and one of my deputy DAs has been around for a long time. He says, well, I know the answer. I was like, well, fantastic. Please do share. And he says, all you got to do is you got to have proof of ownership when mm-hmm. you sell the cat. He's like, that's it. 
It's got to be tied to a VIN number and you have to have proof of ownership. And so we went to Salem, we partnered with Senator Chris mm-hmm. Gorsuch, and we got the law changed that said, if you want to sell a catalytic converter, you need to have a VIN number that it's attached to and proof of ownership, legitimate proof of ownership before you can buy it. And so instead of the old like, well, how do we fix this? I mean, any prosecutor around the state and then previous and even some of the current ones would tell you, oh, well, you just increase the penalty. You just double the penalty. Yep. Right. Well, this is one of my fun experiments. So as you're listening at home to this, ask yourself this question. <laughs> what is the penalty for robbery? Don't know. Yeah. yeah. Who knows? Nobody does. Yeah. Right. So what if I told you I just doubled it? <laughs> right. <laughs> what does yeah. that mean to yeah, you? Nothing. It yes. means nothing. Exactly. Right? Yes. And so this old idea of like, oh, we'll just double the penalty, triple the penalty. One time you're out the penalty. You know, nobody knows what the penalties are, right. much less the people who were prosecuting for a lot of these crimes. You know, they're not tracking what's happening in the legislative session. So we <laughs> fool ourselves into right. thinking, oh, I'm going to say these tough on crime things and people will listen to that and they will read the papers and they'll do their research. And then they'll say, <laughs> they'll sit down, do their cost benefit analysis and say, crime no longer pays. I'm, I'm going to get out of this industry, right? Like, it's, it's so nonsense. Not going to happen. <laughs> like, those of us who don't want to no. be arrested don't rob people. And we don't know what the penalty is, right? But we know that there is a penalty. And so that's where I think uh, our policy has gone wrong historically. And we need to get back to accountability. Mm-hmm. If you are victimizing people in our community, you need to be held accountable. But whether we're throwing away the key forever or anything else, that's not actually going to have much of an effect of uh, whether or not crime is committed locally. We know that. No. Yeah. I, I mean, and, and we've seen that that crime hasn't gone away. And we're the most punitive, <laughs> one of the most punitive uh, reserve for a handful of countries out there. Can I share a quick anecdote? Yeah, sure. I was down in, uh, in Alabama. Part of my job, I get to uh, go around the country and I get to meet district attorneys. And some of these are just absolutely incredible people doing incredible things. I was down in Alabama and I was there to tour um, the Legacy Museum, uh, which is the Brian Stevenson Museum on Mm. uh, slavery. Right. Yeah. Unbelievable. (coughs) Life-changing experience. Uh, It's not easy to get to Montgomery, Alabama, but you need to do it. I will take my kids there for sure um, some t- someday. But I'm down there and I'm talking to the district attorney. And he's we're just telling stories. And he says, yeah, he's like, you know, there's this gentleman who I sent to prison, uh, but we've stayed in touch with one another. He goes, I sent him there for life. And uh, but he's coming up in front of the parole board. And, you know, I think I'm going to support his, his parole uh, and that he should be released. And I thought, I was like, wow, that's uh, that's very fantastic. That's Look at this. A guy's prosecuted him, but he's stayed in contact with him, and now he's going to support his release. So I say to the district attorney, I say, well, what did you do? What did you prosecute him for? And he said, oh, purse, purse snatching. And I'm like, you sent him to prison for life for purse snatching? And he's like, whoa, it was his third time. Wow. And I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. That would never that is our laws in Oregon would never permit that. I mean, you cannot go to prison for life for purse snatching in Oregon. It's you just can't right. do it. No matter how prolific a purse snatcher you are, it is not possible. But in Alabama, if it is your third time, mm-hmm. uh, apparently you can. So, my natural question to myself and I immediately said, "It's great to talk to you." And I start googling on my phone, "What are the crime rates in Alabama versus the crime rates in Oregon?" 
Well, what do you think? Are Have Alabama solved crime with their tough on purse snatching laws? No. In yeah. fact, their property crime rates are very comparable to ours and their violent crime rates are much higher than ours. So again, this fallacy that, oh, you can tough on crime your way out of this mm-hmm. is just uh, not borne out by anything that we know in evidence and research. And in fact, it's about being smart about these things. Accountability is key. Interdiction, stop the behavior is key. And now let's talk about how we put you back on the right path. Fantastic. Everybody's seen, unfortunately, the incredibly juvenile and stupid people for Portland billboards. Um, Apparently, some folks downtown have taken issue with them and tried to uh, spruce them up with uh, some paint, apparently. Um, And I don't openly support graffiti. That sounds like I just criminalized myself. Anyway, um, (laughs) I've heard you speak on it a lot, right, Uh, that they don't offer solutions. They really never have. I I went to Oristar and I looked at some of the top campaign donations to your opponent. And number two is Schnitzer Properties. Tim Boyle. um, I I like Columbia Sportswear. Anyway, we'll probably have to strike that. The one that was really interesting is two donations from Betsy Johnson's uh, Political Action Committee. How does that feel that the same people who are trying to get her elected are now funding your opponent in a Portland race? Yeah, well, Betsy Johnson uh, now uh, famously, right, uh, while she was running, uh, called us the city of roaches. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. You know, and... I think she called it a shithole or something while flying over in her helicopter. Yeah. 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 Um, Uh, So to see her um, and her machine that she built in her gubernatorial race now pivot to supporting my opponent. You know, I think you can learn a lot about uh, who it is that is behind the people Um, because my opponent, when he's out talking to groups, and I just got a report uh, the other day about a conversation he had, and he's being asked by some of these groups, how do you think about restorative justice? How do you think about you know, what Mike did with the Justice Integrity Unit? What do you think about this? And his answers are very mealy-mouthed and very like, oh, I'm holistic. And he says all these buzzwords that are very vague in general, uh, but that actually don't mean very much. So people leave that meeting being like, oh, I think he's for those things. And and you're like, oh, well, that's interesting. Then why is he running against the guy who started all those things? Well, because what's actually happening is who's behind him and what do they want? What are their goals? Yeah. And so, you know, I think it's always complicated. Um, Betsy Johnson, one of the things you have to know about her is that senator for a long time. Mm -hmm. She represented uh, Astoria, um, Mm -hmm. Clatsop County. The district attorney from Clatsop County is a man named Josh Marquis. Any of you who read the comment section of anything to do in uh, Oregon criminal justice will find Josh Marquis in there commenting. Mm. Betsy Johnson uh, gets most of her talking points and thinking around criminal justice from this very regressive prosecutor. Mm. Um, And so that frames a lot of her thinking on this. Betsy Johnson and I have known each other for over a decade. Um, Mm -hmm. And when I was the state director of the Criminal Justice Commission, we had interactions. Um, And so this is not necessarily new. And and Josh Marquis and I have been on kind of the opposite side of of basically every issue you can imagine. (laughs) Um, so, So her thinking, I think, is molded by that. Then you've got the actual 
consultants, right? And, and they're pivoting and they're trying to uh, earn their dinner or lavish uh, meals as they go on Fox News. And they're making a lot of money off of people's anger and mm-hmm. off of trying to divide people. So I think that's their motivation. You know, Kevin Looper, historic Democrat, mm-hmm. you know, in terms of work doing all that kind of consulting work. Now he is fully all in on trying to make a lot of money by capitalizing on people's legitimate, you know, frustrations and angers of things that they're seeing and trying mm. to pivot that into a way to to make a lot of money. So there's a lot of disingenuous things happening behind okay. this. And then you have my opponent who is all too happy to say, yeah, 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 I'm, uh, I'll be their spokesperson. I'll do those things. And so on the one hand, he says all these really mealy mouth things about reform and all this stuff. But what is he actually telling to Jordan Schnitzer? Mm-hmm. and to Tim Boyle and to Greg Goodman and the Goodmans. Mm-hmm. Like, what, what are those conversations? And I know what those conversations are because I've had conversations with all of them. Uh, I know what it is that they're asking for and I know what it is they want. And so um, I think he talks a lot about how I, I don't prosecute things. I think what you can expect from him is a massive expansion of prosecution. Um, A lot of our community-based partners have gone out and have listened to things he's said, and they've said he really has kind of a broken windows philosophy, a Rudy Mm Giuliani-esque philosophy on prosecution. And I think it goes back to the fact, and he likes to tout his experience of being a two-decades prosecutor in the office and all. He's tried every type of case. He's only ever been a prosecutor. Every problem that he encounters, he Mm. has a prosecutorial solution for. If I can just prosecute this individual, I will fix it. Mm. So everything he sees that plagues anything, he can prosecute our way out of this. And that is truly his philosophy on these things. Now, you talk to me and you talk about catalytic converter thefts. I don't like catalytic converter thefts. I'm against it. I don't want people to get them stolen. What do we do? Instead of doubling the penalty and having a prosecutorial solution, we talk about VIN numbers and ownership, gun violence, hitting our community really hard. People need to be held accountable if they're shooting people in our community. No doubt about that. There's a prosecutorial role for us. And we've partnered with OHSU and epidemiologists around the region and teachers and religious leaders. And now we are reviewing cases. And because the NRA has prevented us from studying gun Mm -hmm. violence in this country, Mm -hmm. we don't have a lot of research and evidence into what works. We're changing that here in Oregon because of a a relationship and a partnership with the district attorney that doesn't view the solution to every problem as being a prosecutorial solution. And so I think what you see is a lot of misinformation, a lot of people that don't uh, understand, and then the opportunists who are trying to do different things for different reasons Mm. uh, and really want that kind of more prosecutorial carceral solution instead of actually being curious about what really works Mm -hmm. to keep us safe because there is good research on what works to keep us safe uh, and it's not what they're selling fantastic thank Thank you you. thank you mike schmidt your humanist and logical approach uh really respect that it's been great getting a chance to talk to you get to know you um i've been at a couple events with you and seen pictures of you you know in in the in the news and um my partner often says that i have resting stern face (laughs) <laughs> and I, I have found that with a bit with you in the in the in the public. I'm like, hmm, he's a little uh, hard to read. A little seems, and so it's been great to get uh, a sense of the the person behind the face. Um, and uh, I saw on your website that you're also a, a Trailblazers fan. How are you feeling about this season? Oh, yeah. 
you know, it's it's a little hard for me. I watched the Dame game the other night, the return for Damian yep. Lillard uh, from Milwaukee. I was so uh, excited that we won that game. Mm-hmm. And I was so waiting for Damian to rip our hearts out at the very end <laughs> and tap his wrist. But he uh, he didn't yeah. do it. And uh, and we held on to that game. Um, it it's an exciting time, uh, to, you know, see the promise. Uh, and, yes. and so I think that's what I'm, I'm hanging my hat on is, is oh, the building and being around the journey. Um, so I, you know, I'm a fan, uh, and, and, you know, I, my football allegiance is to the new Orleans saints. I was a teacher down in new Orleans for, uh, it's how I started my career. And I became a season ticket holder to the saints. Because uh, for ninety nine dollars you could be a season ticket holder because they were that bad. Wow, they were, they were called the Aints, right? And uh, you know what I learned from that is that uh, you stay with your teams through thick and thin. And uh, so I'm yes. a Saints fan, and and we're going through a downturn right now. I'm a Blazers fan, and we're rebuilding. And so I'm excited for the ride. That's what makes fa- being a fan fun. Yep. Uh, and so I'm here for it. Right on. Okay. Lastly, how do people support you? Oh, thanks so much. Yeah, you know, so election is in May. And because there are only two of us right now in the race, and I think it'll end that way, the primary will decide this race. So May 21st, the primary. So between now and then, obviously, we're trying to fundraise uh, a lot. So Mike Schmidt for DA.com is where you can go to make a donation. Uh, You can also sign up to be a volunteer. We're going to be doing door knocking. We're going to be doing phone banking, text banking, you know, uh, getting the word out any way you can. We also have, and this is crucial, a, a thing that you can download about the myths of this race, the, mm-hmm. the misinformation. Because people come up to me all the time. They say, Mike, I hear you speak and I, I'm in. I, I get it. And then I go talk to somebody at my kitchen table and they ask me a question and I don't know how to answer it. You know, help me. How do I answer it? So we designed a kind of a package that somebody could download and print out. And it just has the kind of myth questions. Is crime up? No, it's not. Here's the numbers. Do you prosecute cases? Everyone says you don't. Yes, they are. We're at seven and eight year highs for prosecution rates. So we we do some myth busting. So go on the website. Uh, Mike Schmidt for DA.com. You can uh, sign up to volunteer, sign up to make a donation. At this point, we've raised enough money that our campaign uh, mechanisms are paying for. Every dollar that people donate is getting the word out. That's what it's all going for is for help us spread the message. And then download our tools to to help you engage with community members and, and your friends and family who you know, maybe they saw a billboard and they're like, I don't know about this. Uh, you know? <laughs> uh, so that's, those are the ways you can help. But it, this really is a people powered campaign. You read the names of the people. There are no campaign finance limits in my race. Right. And so the mega donors are lining up on the other side because they are trying to pay for an outcome uh, yeah. that I think is not actually aligned with the values of this community. So mm. if we're going to be successful in this race. It's going to be people powered. It's going to be small donations. It's going to be conversations with your neighbors and, and helping us kind of get the word out. Amen. Thank you. Thank you both. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for listening. Progress Portland is also on Facebook and Instagram, and we have event listings and updates on our website, progressportland.org. There's a content form on our website if you'd like to help out or have questions or comments. Our theme music is by the Portland band Helvetia.